Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. Today, we're giving a socialist vision for the future of the U.S. labor movement. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Not a wheel turns, not a phone rings, and not a light bulb shines without the kind permission of the working class. And yet, unionization rates are at a historic low in the U.S., while homelessness climbs and wages continue to stagnate. So how can workers organize to fight back? Socialist Revolution editor Tom Trottier provided an introduction to these questions at our recent online Marxist school. He explained that to win the fight against capital, workers need to organize on the basis of class struggle methods and a fighting revolutionary outlook. Talking about the labor movement, We have to understand that under capitalism, the first line of defense for workers is a trade union, if they are lucky enough to have one. Now, a union is all the workers banding together against the boss. That's what a union is. It's not that building over there or that particular union leader over here. A union is all the workers banding together. And if you look at union membership, it represents, to a certain extent, the past struggles of the workers against the boss, against the capitalist class. But it also represents the future threat or the threat of future battles against the boss. That means, you know, when a boss implements uh, um, policies at his workplace, he does have to calculate if he's in a union workplace, what the workers are going to do, how they're going to respond to some of his policies. And even in a non-union workplace, he needs to think, think this through with this set workers off and create a potential uh, organizing campaign against them. So the, the question, you know, that I'd like to start out with first is what are the advantages of belonging to a union, even under present day uh, American capitalism? And um, if you look at 2018 numbers, 2018 figures, um, if you look at the median income of union workers, uh, that was $1,041 per week for unionized workers. That's the median income. If you compare that to the median income of non-union workers, that in the United States in 2018, that was only $829 per week. So that means if you were to take the union workers, I'm sorry, if you were to take the non-union workers and bring their wages up to union level, that would have been an immediate 26% raise, which ain't too bad, right? Um, And you can see that that difference in wages um, a, again, that ex- is to me an expression of the past struggles of the unions and also the threat of future battles. But in addition to that, there's other things that these numbers aren't telling us. For example, these numbers don't factor in the fact that um, there are some non-union workers who today are paid more because the boss is afraid of them unionizing. In other words, he's giving them a raise to prevent them from unionized. That's not factored in, 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 those, uh, in those figures. Also, uh, what's not presented in those figures is that if you're in a union, you're more likely to have a pension. You're more likely to have better health benefits and pay less for your health benefits. All of those things are not uh, a factor. And on top of all that, 
another another benefit, of course, be, of being in a union is that if you're in a non-union workplace in the United States, you're generally an at-will worker, an at-will employee, which means the boss can fire you uh, whenever he wants, just and doesn't have to give a reason. He can do it for no reason. He can do it for any made-up reason. Usually, if you're in a unionized workplace uh, and you're through your probation period, you at least have some protection, some more protection than does uh, the at-will non-union uh, workers. But we have to say that although there's definitely plenty of plenty of advantages for workers to be in unions, we also have to say they're limited. You know, there are limits to what unions can achieve under capitalism. If we're on a sinking ship, it might be better to be located on the top deck than like further down in the ship. But the bottom line is we all have to get off that boat. <laughs> if Even if you're on the top deck, eventually when the ship sinks, it's not going to really matter. You're going to be in the water. So we have to understand that, that what unions can achieve, what they can get for workers under capitalism is quite limited. Now, let's. I wanted to, to just take a look a little bit at the evolution of the labor movement in the United States in the past period. Now, if you go back 73 years ago, which is back in 1947, at that time, there were about two out of every five workers, which is basically almost 40% of the labor force was in trade unions. And at that time, most of the trade union movement was unions of the private sector. The public sector had not uh, become very well unionized back in 1947. But what we see in that period after World War II uh, was this post-World War II economic boom for capitalism, particularly American capitalism, but also uh, European capitalism, Japanese capitalism, et cetera. And in this boom period, coupled with a, a vicious attack against the left in the trade unions, because the left prior to 1947 was very large uh, and influential in the American unions because they had built the unions in the 30s. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but then there was this giant red scare McCarthy period that, that was, uh, that, you know, that, that unfolded in that period, which basically purged the unions of a lot of the left. And there was very little um, organized, you know, leftist uh, uh, um, control in the unions and influence in the unions after that, after that purge. So you start seeing the effects, even in the capitalist boom period, you start seeing the effects of purging the left and the decrease in, uh, in the uh, scope of the labor movement. So 17 years after 1947, we'll go up to 1964. And then if you look at the figures, about one third of the labor force was, were, were, were unionized. And in that one third, a growing proportion of the organized workers were in the public sector because in the 1950s and then continuing in the 60s and 70s, more and more teachers and more and more public sector workers become unionized. But like I said, the other side of that was that the, the, the losses that were starting to accumulate in the private sector, including expansion of new private industry, which wasn't being unionized at the time. Then 19 years after 1964, go to 1983, and we see at that time, the United States had 17.7 million workers in unions, which was about 20.1% of the labor force. So about a fifth of the labor force. So you've gone from 40% of the labor force down to 20% of the labor force uh, unionized. And if you say, well, what are the figures today? Where's labor today? Well, even with the growth of population that we've had, significant growth of population since 1983, Whereas in 1983, you had almost uh, 18 million people in unions. Now you have 14.6 million members of the trade unions. And it's only 
of the labor force. So just a tenth of, of the uh, labor force is unionized. And also, a lot of, a lot of the organized uh, labor, uh, the, the organized portion of the labor force is public sector workers. Because if you look at the public sector, right, in, in, in according to these figures, 33.6%, basically a third of the public sector is unionized. But if you look at the private sector, only 6.2% of the pri private sector is, is, is organized into unions. So you've seen a, a real decrease in, in the scope and power of unions in the private sector. Now, as you see the labor movement getting smaller and uh, how is that affecting the, the, the worker? How is that uh, you know, affecting the standard living of American workers? Well, what we can see now over this whole period since the, if, you know, starting in the post-war period all the way till now, is first of all, very few workers now have defined benefit pensions, very few. Now, when I say defined benefit pension, here in the United States, they have these 401ks and they call that a pension, but that's not a 401k is not a pension. A 401k is you save your money for your retirement. Maybe the boss might match it a little bit, but he doesn't have that much expenses when it comes to a 401k. That's very different from the past where we had defined benefit pensions, where you worked a certain amount of time and you got collected a pension from the time you retired to the day you died. So we see very few workers are today covered by defined benefit pensions. Another thing is that of those workers who are uh, covered by defined benefit pensions, you can have these various gimmicks they, ca they call tier pensions where the pension that you get is a lot worse than what the pension that you, the, the uh, workers who were employed before you used to get. An example of that, for example, is if you work in the public sector in New York State or New York City, which is heavily unionized, public workers in New York State, public workers in New York City are almost all in unions. Um, we have a pension system here where if you get a job now, you're going on tier six. And I can tell you the tier six pension is significantly worse than the tier four pension. The tier four pension is significantly worse than the tier two pension and the tier two pension was worse than the tier one, so on and so forth. So even among that sector of the workforce that does have pensions, you see the erosion of those kinds of benefits. You also see a phenomena even among union workers where workers have to pay part of their health benefits and a greater part of those health benefits through co-payments, through deductibles, through all kinds of schemes that they're implementing. If you look at real wages, the real wages of workers in the United States today are lower than they were in 1973. That means if you take the wages of 1973 and hold it uh, even for inflation, the wages were actually higher in 1973 than they are today. And another, another thing we must observe, look at the growth of employment in certain uh, private sector companies. An enormous amount of employees work for these companies and they're not unionized. For example, um, Trader Joe's stores around the country, there's approximately 10,000 employees. I, that, that's the number I saw. I don't know if, if that's a, a completely accurate, but it's, it's about 10,000. That's unorganized. Whole Foods employs some like 91,000 workers. That's unorganized. Amazon, uh, employs 800,000 workers, unorganized. Walmart employs 2.2 million workers. That's also unorganized. And we're not even talking about things like Uber, where they have like some like 2 million drivers, they define them as independent contractors. And of course, they have no real protection against the boss. And there's no serious attempt to organize these workers. So look at all of the, the how, how things have unfolded for the American working class in the past, in the past period. Now, we can say um, 
Also, the immediate, and the immediate effect of the slump that we're in has been very devastating to the, to the working class in this country. Um, if, you, if you look at the um, latest, uh, 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 for j just to give you this number, if you go back in April, 2020, April of this year, only 69.7% of adults aged 25 to 54 were employed. Only 69.7% of adults, 25 to 54 were employed. That's a 45 year low. Now in September of this year, that number had gone up to 75.3%, but that's about as bad as it got in the last slump, the Great Recession, the so-called Great Recession of 2008. So that's, that's what they call you know, good news. If you look at, for example, the unemployment rate um, in, in, uh, for uh, October, for last month, um, the U6 unemployment rate is, is not accurate, but it's more accurate than the other uh, rates that they, uh, that they report. The U6 rate was 12.1%. For October 2020. Compare that with the year before in October 2019, the U6 rate was only 6.9%. And we're talking about something like more than 20 million people unemployed. Now, it also should be understood that because unemployment benefits in the United States do not go, do not last till the, till the employee actually gets a new job, they actually run out over time. We know that there are many, many people who are unemployed. Many of these 20 million people are either on benefits that have run out or are running out very soon, and they're going to be uh, faced with a, a very, very tough situation. If you look at industry, now remember uh, our glorious President Donald Trump uh, was saying that he was gonna get American industry back again, and it was gonna be like the 50s and the 60s. To show you um, that lie, um, capacity utilization for industry, that is, what percent of, is, of industrial capacity is being used to make goods? If you look at the high point in the late 1960s, it, uh, at a certain point, it hit 89%. So 89% in the late 60s, 89% of industrial capacity was actually being used to produce goods, you know, with real workers, et cetera. Now, if you compare that with the average capacity utilization rate for industry from 1972 to 2019, the average was 79.8%. Now, I want to draw your attention to this that if the average from 1972 to 2019 was 79.8%, that means you've already had a big drop from 89% down to 79.8% in terms of the amount of industry that's being used. But uh, it, when Trump says he was going to return back, back to that time, the fact is, is in the period of time, the first three years of his administration, when things were economically better, the capacity utilization rate never went above 75%. So his capacity utilization rate, the first three years of his, his administration was actually significantly below that average from 72 to 2019, which was already lower than the high point in the 1960s. But then if we look at this year, like in the latest uh, figures, um, the, the September cap capacity utilization rate was only 71.5%. Now that not only is, is lower than what it had been, but it's also 8.3 points lower than that average from 1972 to 2019. So these, all of these numbers show the pain, the suffering that's going on in the working class. And we know the bigger the unemployment, the less employment you have, that's a pressure on the workers in the workforce because the boss will use the unemployed and use them to, to pit them against the, the people employed right now and pressure them to take uh, you know, less wages, less benefits and, and work faster on the job, et cetera. Now, just in case anybody was worried, that the billionaires 
we're not doing very well during this past period. I'm, I'm, I will assure you they've done quite well in this past period. I don't know if uh, people have seen these figures, but if you look um, since March 18th, 2020, when the shutdown started till September 15th, 2020, America's billionaires did quite well. Their net worth grew from $2.95 trillion and it grew from there to $3.8 trillion, which comes out to a nifty $4.7 billion a day every day. That's not a bad living uh, if you can make it. But uh, as we know, that money, all that ex extra money is coming from the hard work of American working class. We'll get, get to that. So I think this poses some questions for us that we want to take up today. And that is, uh, you know, I believe, I firmly believe that this situation can be turned, turned around. We can turn around the labor movement in this country. That's absolutely possible. But in order to do that, we're going to have to reference history. We're going to have to look at the lessons of history. We have to ask ourselves, why is labor on the decline? How was, how was the labor movement built? What were its perspectives and what, it, what were its strategies that brought about the victory? And what can you, the person attending this meeting, what can you do to help to turn this around? Um, you know, if, if you want to look at how we got here today, I would say that the present labor leaders, the present leadership of the labor movement, all accept capitalism. They all base their policies on accepting the laws of capitalism and the limits of the system. They all support what we call class collaboration. This is a mistaken idea that what's in the interest of the capitalist class and what the, what's in the interest of the working class can find common ground and both can prosper. So when we're looking at the results of what's happened to the labor movement in the past decades, it's we're, what we're doing is we're examining this policy of class collaboration. I think the class collaboration policy, if it really worked, if it was really correct, by now things would be booming for American workers. But in actual fact, as we can see, uh, it's not. Let's look at the logic of class collaboration. If you're a worker and you work for a company and the company says, we're losing money, what does the labor lead, what, what, what conclusion do the labor leaders draw from that to say, well, we have to give concessions. We have to give back. We have to make sure that we don't make as high wages. We don't make as high benefits. Or maybe all the new people who get hired, they'll make significantly less than the people who work now. For example, in General Motors, if you're an older worker and you've been in General Motors for a while, you'll get a pension. If you're a brand new worker hired today to work for General Motors, you're not going to get a pension no matter how long you work there. That's the logic of class collaboration. That's the logic of accepting the limits of capitalism. Um, how about the public sector workers? You know, governments, they have to give all kinds of tax cuts and tax incentives to businesses and rich people so that they don't lose that source of tax revenue and all that, right? And then after giving all those tax cuts and tax breaks to big corporations and rich people, then when the public, sectors come, uh, public sector workers come to negotiate for wages and benefits, the government leaders say, oh, I'm sorry, we're broke. We really can't afford uh, to give you a raise or give you much anything. You're going to have to take give backs or concessions. The logic of the trade union leadership is to go along with that and accept that. And they've done that. You know, in New York State, they've accepted, like, for example, with the pensions in New York State and City going from tier one to tier two to tier three to tier four and now to tier six. They've accepted that. And there are other concessions they've accepted uh, as well. And then what about when the workers do fight back? What is the strategy of the trade union leaders in, in those situations? Well, generally, the trade union leaders try not to engage in strikes 
and try not to engage in job actions. They try to avoid those things like the plague. But if they do engage in strikes or job actions, they say that we have to follow the letter of the capitalist law. If the capitalists say you can only have six people on the picket and you can't block the scabs going in and out, you don't do that. If, uh, you know, if it, they basically do everything they're told and, and, and try to run a strike within the limits of capitalism, which is why so many strikes go to defeat you know, uh, when, when they follow that kind of strategy. How about organizing the unorganized? What is the philosophy of the class collaborationist trade union leaders on that? Well, they want to organize new unions according to federal rules set by the National Labor Relations Board and the National Labor Relations Act. The problem is, is that these laws and these rules are written in such a way that make organizing extremely difficult and beneficial to the boss. So by doing things in that way, this is, this is why you've seen very few people get organized in unions in the past period and why you see, continue to see the percentage of the labor force that's organized into, into unions drop over time. Now, politically, these same union leaders, again, because they base themselves on accepting the limits of the system, they ignore the fact that the working class is the vast majority of society. They ignore the fact that the working class has its own interests opposed to the capitalist class. So they refuse to build a workers party. They refuse to, to, to run independent working class candidates. And they end up trying to choose between endorsing Republicans at times and Democrats. Of course, most of the time it's the Democrats, but sometimes they occasionally uh, uh, endorse Republicans. And we've seen the benefits of that. We've seen through all those statistics where that's gotten the working class. Um, and right now, we should be realistic and understand this. If you look at the labor movement right now, the 14.7 million organized workers, you look at the trade unions, right now in the United States, there is no organized left opposition to the policies of the trade union leaders. So that's part of our agenda is to try to change that. And I think we can change that. And I'm going to make a case for that. Uh, in my in the in the next in my next point. Now, first of all, let's examine how did the labor movement get built in the beginning. How was this done? And I'm going to tell you a secret. This is one of the best kept secrets in the United States. Pe the 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 trade union leaders, by the way, if you're ever in a trade union, it's very rare. You might occasionally get this, but very rare that you really learn about trade union history. If you did learn about trade union history, one of the things you'd learn is that most of the unions, particularly the powerful unions in the United States, uh, the important unions, were actually built by the left. They were built by communist, socialist, anarcho-syndicalists. Those are the people who played the key role of building the trade unions in the past. The struggle to build unions, the struggle for the eight-hour day, the struggle even for the weekend, the idea that you could work Monday through Friday and have Saturday and Sunday off. The idea that workers could have pensions, the idea that workers could get covered uh, by their employer for health care benefits, and that workers would have some safe conditions or more, you know, fight for more worker safety on the job. All of these things were a byproduct of the struggle of the labor movement. And a lot of that was led by the communists, the socialists, and, and the left in, in general. You can, you can, uh, I can name a few people just to give people a taste of this. You can go back to William Silvis. You can talk about Eugene V. Debs. You can talk about Big Bill Haywood, Mother Jones, A. Philip Randolph, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, Benjamin Harrison Fletcher. There's, and there are countless others that I'm leaving out, you know, Carl Scoglin, the Dunn brothers. We, we can go on and on. There was these tremendous 
fighters for the labor movement, all were on the left. They were all leftists. They were all in some way uh, uh, did not have that conception that the present American labor leaders have of class collaboration, accepting the limits of capitalism. Now, we have heard this expressed uh, by some elements, particularly in, in the universities and academia, that the American working class uh, will never fight. That's why uh, things are so bad. The American workers, they won't fight. They won't really go out and struggle. And the fact is, is if you study history up till the recent events under this pandemic, if you study history, you, you know that that's a complete lie. The American working class has shown that it will fight and fight again. And it leads some of the most militant uh, uh, struggles that you've ever seen in the history of the working class anywhere. I mean, we can go back to Haymarket. We can go back to the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, the Pullman Strike of 1894. By the way, the last two of those strikes that I just mentioned, federal troops were, 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 de were detached to, to put those strikes down. You can go back to the 1934 strikes, like the Teamster Strike in Minneapolis, the West Coast Longshore Strike, the auto uh, parts workers in, in Ohio, the textile strike in 1934, which stretched from states all the way in the North, all the way to the South in the United States. Big, big battles. We can talk about the Flint, Michigan uh, 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 GM sit-down strike in 1936, and then a wave of sit-down strikes that happened around the country. We can look at the great postal strike of 1970, the UPS strike in 1990s, and the West Virginia teacher strike, which just happened a few years ago in 2018. On top of all those past histories, look at what happened this year. We have all kinds of recent wildcat strikes in COVID-19. The New York City teachers did not go on strike, but a lot of people don't realize this. It was the threat of New York City public school teachers, the threat of that they might go on strike, which finally closed the schools in the midst of the COVID, the height of the COVID pandemic in New York City. Because the mayor wanted to just keep the schools open, but it was a threat of a strike by teachers that closed the school. So in that case, it wasn't even a, a, an actual strike. It was even just a threat of a strike that, that, that pushed the bosses back. Um, you had auto workers during the pandemic who were facing unsafe uh, conditions. They pulled a wildcat strike. That was it. GM had to shut down. Ford had to shut down. I think even non-union Honda had to shut its facilities because of a wildcat strike. You had sanitation workers in Pittsburgh who were going to take action to protect their health. Detroit bus drivers also. And then you even had unorganized sections like the pizza delivery wor uh, workers and other uh, uh, um, workers in different places also took action. So you see tremendous uh, ability of American workers to fight, whether you go way back in history or whether you go back recently. The American working class is historically a very combative working class and will fight a, a, a long and brutal fight if it has to in order to win. But the thing is, is this fighting is good and we need fighting. We're not we're not against that. But the fact is, is that isn't enough to win. In order to win, you don't have to just, it's not just about fighting and fighting hard, but you have to have a strategy. You have to have tactics. You have to have a perspective. You need good leadership. And that's why we argue that Marxists need to be in the unions. We need the ideas of Marxism to combine with that fighting spirit, to combine with that militancy. And it's that combination which will lead the workers to victory. Without that combination, you can fight and you can give them a real big battle, but that ultimately that will not prevail. You need good ideas, you need good leadership, you need good strategy and tactics in order to win. Now, what are some of the basic ideas of, of Marxists when we work inside the trade unions, as opposed to the class collaboration uh, uh, ideas of the trade union leaders? 
First of all, we start from a different premise. We say that the interests of the capitalist class and the interests of the, of the working class are completely opposed. It's, it's not, we're, we're not looking for common things here. And one of the reasons they're completely opposed, by the way, is who is creating all the value in society? Where does wealth come from? You know, the capitalists say that, the, that, that they are the wealth creators. It's the boss that creates wealth. These are lies, comrades, and we will, and we will, uh, uh, mention, we will bring these ideas to the working class. And when you bring them, uh, most workers see this because they see this in their daily uh, life at work. They see that it's their labor working on natural resources of the world that creates the wealth. It's not the boss that creates the wealth. It's the labor of the working class um, um, working on all those natural resources that create the wealth. What the boss does is all of the value that the worker is creating, he's taking a portion of that as profits and that's how he's accumulating all this wealth. So when you, when you make people understand where the wealth is coming from, where, where the, that also uh, shows the power of labor. It's not the rich, it's not the capitalists that make society run, it's the workers that make society run. We, we, if we can un make people understand that if you maximize your power, if labor is organized, it's conscious of its power, and it's united to win, we've got to fight against any divisions. That's why the old adage, uh, uh, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all is so important. If we're united, if we're conscious of our power, if we're organized, then nothing can stop the power of labor. We're the ones that make society run. There isn't any goods that are produced without labor. There isn't any service that's provided without labor. And that, that's very important. And coupled with that, the conception of organize the unorganized, maximize the power of labor, challenge capitalist property relations. We don't stop when the capitalists say, well, I'm sorry, I'm broke. You know, if you're broke, then you should be out of business. We'll nationalize your company, put it under workers' democratic control, and we can run society better than you. We don't, uh, we don't let those kinds of arguments stop us. Now, we should understand the time period that we're living in. I mentioned before that period from 1945 to the early mid-1970s as being an exceptional period in capitalist history known as the capitalist boom, the post-World War II boom. We're no longer in the post-World War II boom. We're in a different epoch of capitalism, an epoch of capitalist decline. Worldwide capitalism is in crisis and in decline. And American capitalism, sick American capitalism, is in a, a declining period. Now, Trotsky mentioned, uh, uh, explained this choice is front, in front, was in front of the trade unions, and I believe it's very applicable to today. He said they, meaning the trade unions, can no longer be reformist because the objective conditions leave no room for any serious lasting reforms. The trade unions of our time can either serve as secondary instru instruments of imperialist capitalism for the subordination and disciplining of the workers and for obstructing revolution, or on the contrary, the trade unions can become the instrument of the revolutionary movement of the proletariat. Comrades, that's what our, uh, our, our orientation is based on, that we want to turn the trade unions into instruments of the revolutionary movement of the proletariat. That's what we're trying to do in terms of our battles. Now, I just wanna give a few lessons from the past. I don't have much time, but I, I, wanna, I, I wanna show how a few Marxists can make a big difference in the labor movement. If you look back at 1934, the Minneapolis Teamsters uh, uh, strike, and, and any person who hasn't read uh, Teamster Rebellion should definitely get that book and read that book. There's just a lot to learn from that. But take a look at that the Teamster strike in 1934. You had a small Teamster local 
that in that prior to the fall of 1933 was had only 75 people in it. But what that 75 people had, there were five Marxist cadre in that local, five Mar Mar Marxist cadre. When we say cadre, we're saying a trained Marxist, trained in theory, trained in method, knowing how to apply the ideas and link up with the working class and lead struggle when the opportunity uh, opens up, right? So you have five Marxists concentrated in that small local, uh, Teamsters local 574 had about 75 people. And a year later, that local had more than 5,000 members. They had won union recognition. They won higher wages, better working conditions. And they not only did that, but they reshaped the, the labor movement in Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities, which had up till then been known as a very anti-union uh, uh, bosses, uh, you, you know, dominated place. It got completely transformed and it, and it was on the side of labor. And they also transformed the Teamsters Union from being a small craft union into what would, over the 1930s, through more organizing, become a powerful industrial union. Now, how did they do it? What, what, what was the, the magic from the method of Marxism? Well, they based themselves on the following strategy that flows from Marxism. Mass mobilization of the membership, organize all the workers into one single union, an industrial union, um, solidarity with the entire labor movement, and also organize the unemployed. That's important. Or unemployed workers are workers, or at least were workers and will become workers again. You have to bring them on your side. Fight for them, they fight for you. Together, we have more power. We don't just uh, you know, push people aside. Mass demonstrations, mass rallies. By the way, not only did they have mass demonstrations, mass rally, you know that they, they, they also hired an airplane to go fly around Minneapolis with, you know, with, with, with uh, pro-union messages. This is the kind of uh, strategy and tactics they implemented. They also implemented their own press. They had a daily paper called The Organizer, right? By the way, just as an aside, you would think in the United States today, we have over 14 million members of the trade unions. You would think the labor leadership with that kind of, uh, of people would have a daily paper, if nothing else, a virtual daily paper on the computer that would give people, the workers, uh, an idea of the world from the viewpoint of the working class. Not only would it be good to help uh, mobilize the membership, it would also be good to help organize the unorganized and organize the unemployed. But uh, that, that still hasn't been implemented by the trade union leaders. Um, but but the, these Marxists, they put together their, their own paper, The Organizer, and they also based them, themselves on understanding of the capitalist state. They knew that the law was against them. They knew that the state apparatus represented the bosses and that they weren't going to have any illusions in, in that, in that uh, uh, government or that state apparatus playing any pro-worker, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, so, you know, taking the side of the workers. They knew it was going to be on the side of the bosses. And with that strategy, that's how they were able to win. Just a few people were able to make such a huge amount of difference and transform the labor movement. Also, uh, just a couple of years later, you have the Flint sit-down strike in, in, uh, in General Motors. That also was led by socialists and communists, right? What did they do with the Flint sit-down strike? They shut down the production of GM. They, they took a crucial part of General Motors production and shut it down. And not only did they do that, right? They didn't, they weren't just out to help the workers in their own factory. They appealed to all GM workers to support their cause. They said, we're struggling for anyone who wants to join our union, the UAW. And by doing that, by having that kind of strategy, they were able to get support from GM workers who were not in their complex uh, throughout the country. And eventually they were able to win. 
the victory of the, uh, you know, victory leads to more success. Success leads to more success. The victory of the sit-down strike in, in GM in Flint, Michigan, uh, led to a wave of sit-down strikes around the country, which helped to organize the unorganized and build the CIO at that time. In tackling Amazon, in tackling Whole Foods, trade, Trader Joe's, Walmart, and even Uber in the future, it's going to take real resources to, to battle these companies to victory. But it's going to also take the kind of strategy, the kind of tactics the Marxists employed in the great battles of the 1930s. And that's why we need to have that cadre, build that cadre ahead of those battles to be able to, um, to be victorious. Um, I, I would say, say uh, you know, the, the, um, that not only do workers have to fight, obviously, on the industrial field, but they also have to fight on the political front. And, and for example, right now we've seen, uh, we discussed this yesterday, that the working class is divided. Right. Um, because of the class collaborationist policies of the trade union leaders, you have some sections of the working class who support the Democrats as the lesser evil. And then you see some sections of the working class think that Trump is the lesser evil. And it could and, 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 and it comes out this way because there's no class independent policy putting forward. There's nothing that unites the working class and shows them the real state of affairs and the real way forward. So this is how how things get broken in, into into these uh, in, you know, uh, into these two uh, kinds of, you know, having the working class split against itself politically. That's why we, as Marxists, when we're doing work in, in the trade unions, we have to pose this idea of independent class politics. The working class should not be supporting either party. Neither party represents the working class. Neither party is out to defend our interests. And, um, and we, should, we should make the connection that fighting on the political front is linked to the fight against the boss in the workplace. That the, the two battles go hand in hand. Um, it's it's not just that we want to build independent political uh, uh, an independent political party of the working class on the political front, but also even in our strikes, there's there's this concept of political strikes, right, where the workers go on strike not just for wages and benefits, but to actually achieve a political goal. And we've actually started to see this happen in the United States a little bit. For example, back in December 2018, January 2019, when Trump had shut down the federal government and, you know, lot, thousands, hundreds of thousands of federal workers were not getting paid during that time. I, I, one labor leader, Sarah Nelson, actually came out and talked about the need for a general strike. And when she said that within days, a, a series of air traffic controllers had basically had sick outs in certain important airports, including LaGuardia. And when that happened with just like that, boom. The government uh, reopened, and it was, and that the shutdown was ended. That shows you the power, even of political strikes, that can happen. And we can, and we should make sure that we explain that uh, as part of our uh, part of our work among uh, coworkers. It's also interesting that, and I and I can't remember this happening in the past, that you've actually had uh, talk before the election um, of having political uh, strikes by labor. If, uh, for example, they were they were supposing that if Trump were to steal the election, for example, Rochester, New York Central Labor Council, Massachusetts, Massachusetts Teachers Association, Seattle Education Association, Texas Gulf Coast Area Labor Federation, and 22 other central labor councils, as long with the executive council of the AFD, were talking about going on strike if he were to seize power in some sort of undemocratic way. But that is good that these kinds of things are being discussed in this sense, because what the workers could do to stop Trump, they could also do to stop Biden, to stop the anti-worker attacks of the incoming administration. So it's good that that dialogue is happening. Now, 
comrades, I'm going to try to sum up because I know my time is, uh, is has, uh, going rapidly. But, you know, we have a class war going on in this country. The workers have one army, the, ca the capitalists have another army, but our army needs good leaders. And from our point of view, that means it needs Marxist cadre. It needs people who are trained activists, trained in theory, who, can, who know how to link up with the working class. And if, we, and if we start with a few people, a few people can make a difference, but a few people means that you are able to grow into more and more. And the more people we get, the more influence we can have on the labor movement. The IMT, for example, in, in, in countries where we have a larger uh, group of activists inside the labor movement, has been able to build oppositions in the labor movement, which, which are recognized. For example, uh, in Pakistan, we have the Red Workers Front. That's a recognized uh, opposition in the labor movement in Pakistan. In Italy, our comrades have an opposition inside the main trade union body, the CGIL. Again, it's a recognized body. They're actually able to put forward documents and alternative programs so that workers who are looking for a way to fight, who are looking for a way to forward, can, can go and, and, and be part of the opposition led by the IMT there. And even in Canada, our comrades are starting to build an opposition known as labor fight back. It's maybe at the beginning level, but it, but it's, it has a lot of promise and it's going to grow over the next period. That's the direction that we need to head in the United States. By getting the ones and twos and building them into tens and twenties and eventually hundreds and thousands, we will be able to make a big impact in the United States, in the labor movement in the future. Comrades, you know, the, the future for the workers in, in American capitalism is wage slavery, in a declining American capitalism, in a declining world capitalism. Or their future could be a new life under socialism. But in order to do that, we need a revived labor movement. And that labor movement has to be revived with ideas, the ideas of revolutionary socialism, the ideas of Marxism, the ideas of the fight for a mass socialist worker, working class party, and a workers' government. Thanks for listening to Socialist Revolution Podcast. In the coming days, we'll publish the last session from our National Marxist School, so make sure that you stay tuned for that. Please share the podcast with your friends, family, on social media. Make sure that you click the subscribe button, give it a five-star rating, and if you like what you heard, why not reach out and get involved? Visit socialistrevolution.org to find out more, and uh, you'll find links to subscribe to the magazine, to donate, and to join us in the fight for socialism in our lifetime. <laughs>